This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Welcome back. I'm your host, Christopher Rose, with the Department of History at University of Texas at Austin. My guest in the studio, once again, is Dr. Julia Gossard, who is an assistant professor of European history at Utah State University and an alumna of UT's Department of History. Uh, And today we're going to be talking about uh, one of your research specializations, which is that of French children in the Ottoman Empire. And we're talking about the 17th century Ottoman Empire. Yes which is really early on um, when uh, the empire was still one of the dominant navies in the Mediterranean and one of the dominant trading partners for European nations. Let me just dive right in. French children in the Ottoman Empire. How? What? How? How, you know? (laughs) How and why? How and why? Well, this was a really, so I'm working on a book called Coercing Children right now, which deals with the history of children as agents of social reform, as well as imperialization in the 17th and 18th centuries, and looking widely at what we consider to be the French world. So even though the Ottoman Empire is not French, the French are really wanting to create an Eastern Empire like that of the Dutch, where it's primarily trading outposts and political alliances in the Levant, in the Middle East, in Southeast Asia, and in China as well. And one of their key strategies is to send children to these areas. I've heard you talk about this before, so I'm going to shorthand just a little bit. But one of the things that fascinates me about the way you've presented this in the past is that, to begin with, you have to reassess notions of childhood. Yes, And what it means to be a child, because these are young children we're talking about. One of the difficult things about studying children, whether we're talking about French children in the Ottoman Empire, we're talking about French children in France or American children, is trying to determine what we mean by child. I think modern lexicon has something like seven different categories of what you can call a child. So it can be a toddler, it can be a child, it can be a preteen, a teen, et cetera, et cetera. My sources use two words. Enfant and jeune. So enfant, child, jeune, youth, interchangeably. Oh, dear. And they use them for people anywhere between the ages of about 9 to 25 or even up until the age of 30, depending upon life stages. So to determine what childhood is is actually less about a numeric age in France and more about the attainment of different life stages. So the children that I'm talking about in the Ottoman Empire, by age, they'd probably be what we call adolescents. So between the ages of 12 to 16. And they have completed a type of rudimentary education in both French as well as Turkish or Arabic in this way. So they're able to read, they're able to write, and they're able to do basic mathematics. So you can say that they've completed their formal schooling in that sense. And they're going out, as you said, across the world yeah. to, to, to establish a, a new chapter in the, in the family business. So... This does not strike me as something that was common practice, at least, you know, I haven't run across it in my own research prior to that time. So what was the impetus? How did this all get started? Merchants in Marseille, France, for a long time had sought ways of creating 
cultural, political, and economic alliances with people all around the Mediterranean. And they would typically send a godchild out to a post where the godchild would learn a language, in this case, Turkish or Arabic, in order to set up trading relationships. It's sending somebody who is connected to the family, but not a son, because the son was needed at home in order to make sure that he learned the business, but close enough that they knew that that person would be loyal to their interests while in a new place. And obviously, they needed to approach these people on the people's own terms. They couldn't walk in, you know, and start speaking French and demand that these merchants learn French. They understood that in order to have this relationship work, they had to learn the language, and learn the customs. So we see Marseille merchants doing this first, and then this ad hoc practice becoming very normal and very state-sponsored, especially under Colbert, under Louis XIV. So how were these children chosen, and what did that training look like? Like I said, most of these children were godsons. They were nephews of a large trading family that were being sent over there. When they were in Paris or in Marseille, they would initially go to a school called a School de l'Orient, or an Oriental school, where they would receive a basic education in the Turkish or Arabic languages. And while there, they would get some basic grammar, they would learn a little bit about the history, and then once they were about 16 years old, they were immediately sent off to the Ottoman Empire or to the Persian Empire or Siam or Pondicherry, India, where they were told to live either with armies that were there, French armies, or with missionaries. So we see both of them living there. And once there, the goal was for these people who had, according to the French ideology at the time, sponge-like minds, right? That these children were capable of picking up language in a way in which adults were not. If you also think about the strategy of sending a child versus an adult, it seems less threatening. Yeah, true. You know, if you send a 16-year-old versus a 34-year-old, it seems more like perhaps you can persuade the 16-year-old to do more what you want versus having this adult come and conquer. It seems like a negotiation tactic. So what happened when they arrived in port in, in the Ottoman realm or South Asia or, or Siam? There was an idea that the state had that these children would go out, learn the language, but they would be dressed in this French military garb, actually. And it's kind of funny to see some of these images because the children are wearing quite literally tiny soldier outfits. <laughs> now, you can imagine that if they arrive in an Ottoman market dressed in French military garb, no one wants to talk to them. Yes, that's that's very easy to imagine. <laughs> <laughs> it's very easy to imagine. It's one of the big complaints that they had. They said, if we're here to be able to learn the language, to be able to learn trading customs, then we need to have different identities than what we're doing. So the children themselves started to create these sort of hybrid identities that are fascinating to study, where they would don a turban with their French military pants. Or in Siam, they had uh, little caftans that they would wear over their outfits. And so we see them kind of create these semi-French Turkish, French Ottoman, French Siamese identities that were really important in visualizing that they were somehow in between the two. How did the French authorities who were supposed to be supervising them respond to this? It wasn't quite according to plan. It was a very poor response that they had. There is a great letter from the ambassador 
in Smyrna at the time. And he writes that he can no longer tell the difference between French children and the native children of the town, which I think is fascinating because that says that these children went so far as to adopt the dress, adopt practices like drinking coffee, speaking in Turkish or speaking in Arabic while amongst each other. Mm. And so that that ambassador thought this has gone a little bit too far. So there was pushback to these students and to these children saying, yes, you can learn the languages, you can learn the customs, but we have to push you back just ever so slightly to be, remember, you're here to spread French tradition. And some of the students decide what they're going to do to push back against that is open a French language school where they would teach Ottoman children the French language. And they'd be able to have this almost conversation buddy group where the Ottoman children would help the French children with their language skills and the French children would help the Ottomans with their language skills. That's fascinating. So going back to the whole purpose of this experiment in the first Mm -hmm. place, which was to facilitate trade relationships, was that successful? Yes, it was. For many years, this was the go-to practice, especially for those Marseille merchants who wanted to establish really strong working relationships with Ottoman merchants in particular. And we see their existence there until the mid-18th century. So how long would these kids stay abroad? Was it expected that they would be there indefinitely or that they would come home after a time? They were expected to be there for a few years. Uh, The longest that I ever saw was somebody staying for 10 years. But the majority of these students were staying for about four to seven, depending upon how much money their sponsor had or how much progress they had made. The idea was is that then once they had learned the language and learned the customs, they would come back to either Paris or Marseille teach their fellow merchants those both languages and customs, and then accompany different journeys out to these merchant trading posts as necessary and serve as guides once they were adults. Presumably, while they were still in country, they were supposed to be facilitating new arrivals as well. Yes, absolutely. One of the more fascinating things about these records, though, is the fact that when these children created these hybrid identities while living in the Ottoman Empire, they bring back those same identities to France itself. And that causes a bit of a problem for some of these merchants, again, because they feel like the purpose was to create French interests abroad and not bring back this idea of the Ottoman Empire or this conception of the East at the time. How were they able to deal with that, or were they? Um, Do we know what happened to any of these children once they came back to France? We are able to trace, well, I have been able to trace a few of them at the very least, seeing that some of them do become high-ranking within their own merchant institutions. There is at least one example that I found of somebody moving back to France and then deciding to move back to the Ottoman Empire and actually defecting from his French identity at all. That's, again, an exceptional case that I've only found one of. But it seems that these people are able to create these long-lasting relationships, at least for their lifetime. Let me ask you a question about the formal schooling. How widespread was that, or was this something that the Merchant Association set up so that these children would have these skills? Well, that's a great question because part of my research doesn't just look at these particular types of l'école de l'Orient or schools of the Orient. Instead, it's looking more widely at educational programs throughout France. And what I see is is there's a great number of charity schools, so free public education schools, getting established in 1670s and continuing on with many children 
being educated throughout the 18th century leading right up to the revolution. So we do see a good number of poor children going to school and getting very basic educations as well as vocational skills. And so we see that combination in the 17th century of a basic education includes reading, writing, arithmetic, as well as craft skills for every member of society. Now, these schools of the Orient are a little bit more advanced because they are for children from merchant classes. So they have had private tutors, maybe, who are giving them that same reading and writing components. But they're also learning to read and write Arabic, Persian, exactly, Turkish, yes. etc. Good. Well, this is really fascinating. Is this something that's emerged from the archives fairly recently? Definitely. I came to this project right at the end of my dissertation research, and I scrambled to put a little bit of it into my dissertation. You were there when I presented one of these right. first papers, which was so exciting to get to do. But the the other exciting thing is, is that many people are starting to work on this issue. I have a very good friend at UNC Chapel Hill who is working on the images of children in Cochin, China, and in the Ottoman Empire, and looking at how France at the same time that they had their eye moving westward towards North America, they very clearly had their eye eastward as well. So more and more historians are looking not only at these children, but as these projects of imperialization as a next forefront in French historiography in the 18th century. That's really exciting. Thank you so much for sharing this with us. Mm. That's all the time we have. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. For a transcript of this episode, images, and links to more information, visit our website at 15minutehistory.org. That's the numerals 15minutehistory.org. You can access our full catalog of episodes free of charge at our website and through the iTunes U app for iOS or the Tunes Viewer app for Android. You can also access the 10 most recent episodes through the Apple Podcasts app, Google Play Podcasts, Stitcher, and Overcast. 15-Minute History is produced in partnership between Not Even Past and the Hemispheres Outreach Consortium. Our executive editor is Joan Newberger, and our technical editor is Christopher Rose. Our audio engineers are the awesome folks in the Liberal Arts Instructional Technology Services, Jacob Weiss, Morgan Honecker, Will Kurtzner, Samantha Skinner, and Michael Heidenreich. Special thanks also to Michael DeLeon, iTunes U Site Administrator with Project 2021 and Educational Innovation. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-Minute History do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.